So tonight we get to finish John chapter 3. So um, this is the last we get to hear from John the Baptist. So this is uh, significant because these are the last words you hear of him. He, re- he shows up again in chapter 10 and they speak about him. But this is the last time you get to hear from John. And so John's going to give this final piece of testimony about Jesus, about who he is. Um, and that's significant because John uniquely in the Gospels is the witness to who Jesus is. There's, out of all the human witnesses to who Jesus is, John uniquely bears that role. And so this is the last we hear from him, right? And so it says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. It's interesting because they're already in Judea, at least from the last account, right? They're in Jerusalem for the feast, so they're in Judea. So the first question is, okay, what does that mean to come into the land of Judea? They're already there from the last passage. Well, either some time has passed, right, and they've gone home and lived their life, and, and then Jesus is coming back to Judea from Galilee. That's one possibility. Or the other idea is that Jesus goes out into the wilderness, right, the more barren land, if you want, right, the not city, not Jerusalem, not this very uh, populated area, but he goes out into the wild land, right? And so that's kind of the other idea. And it's interesting because it says that Jesus was spending time with his disciples and baptizing. Now, what's so interesting about that is there is no indication in any of the Gospels other than this spot that Jesus and his disciples baptized until you hear Matthew 28, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He says, baptize, baptizing them and and making them disciples, right? So that, other than that one verse, you never see Jesus baptizing, except for this verse in John. If we didn't have John, we would never know that Jesus and his disciples even baptized. And the question is, okay, why is that? Why does John make a point to bring it here and the other Gospels don't mention it? Well, at least in this passage, what we're seeing come up, and we will see later on in this passage, is that there seems to have been some level of friction between the Baptist's disciple and disciples and Jesus' disciples, that there was a tension between what they saw as two movements. Um, and so what a lot of scholars think is that the other Gospels downplay the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist because um, they don't want to... S- to have Jesus be seen as um, kind of doing the thing that John is doing, right? John is doing baptism, and Jesus, uh, so he kind of he's doing his own thing. He's not he's not necessarily as connected to John the Baptist. But it's he- clear here that Jesus is baptizing, and I think that's what makes sense, right? If we just think about it, how would Christian baptism become a rite outside of that? I mean, how would, how would the idea of Christian baptism, which we obviously still carry on today, how would that have come about if Jesus himself did not initiate it, right? It's pretty unlikely that it would have come about unless Jesus himself did, did command it. And so I think here, John's remembering this, this incident in, in this story, and it's showing us insight into the fact that Jesus, now, he did baptize. Now, granted, Jesus, it says, we're going to find out later, we won't see it tonight, but in the very first part of chapter 4, it says Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples did. And so I think those two things are kind of held in tension, right? Jesus' movement and his disciples are baptizing people just like John, right? They've, they've received that ministry from John of baptizing. But Jesus himself did not baptize, it says, in John 4. And why is that? Well, my guess is Jesus reserved his baptism for what 
his baptism was, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I, I do think that's part of the reason Jesus did not water baptize people. Because Jesus did have a baptistic ministry, but his ministry was baptizing in the Holy Spirit, right? Not in water. And so his disciples, from the very beginning, it says that his disciples were baptizing, which is interesting that it doesn't show up anywhere else in the Gospels. I'd never really thought about that until I read the passage this week. That's intriguing to me. But clearly, we, we carry that on today, the legacy of that, of Jesus doing that. And we know that Jesus and John had a relationship. And I, for those of you who have been here, I mentioned that early on when John's doing his ministry and Jesus is baptized by him, that Jesus identifies himself with John's ministry, which is kind of backwards for how we typically think about things, right? We expect uh, Jesus to always be the, the, the foremost and the most preeminent, and he is, right? John clearly responds to him that way. He says, in Matthew, he even says, right, I, I, I can't baptize you. I have need to be baptized by you, right? And Jesus says, well, let's permit it at this time to do righteousness. And Jesus is baptized by John. But, but Jesus, by being baptized with John, he's identifying himself with John's ministry. And so I think that is where Jesus takes this baptism ritual. He, he furthers the ministry of John, right? And Jesus is part of John's movement in that sense. Now, he's certainly the fulfillment of it, and obviously the word that, that is enfleshed in Jesus. He was before John, clearly. But also from a human level, Jesus is, is really coming under John's ministry, which is unique. We, we don't tend to think of that. But it's clearly true. So it says they were spending time in baptizing. John also was baptizing, doing his ministry, in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. So they have several sites, and what's interesting is they're all kind of in Israel, that they think Anon would be. Those sites are all kind of in uh, what would be the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom. And um, that's all Samaritan territory. Which is also intriguing, right? Well, because we know the next story that's going to come up in John is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So they're out near Anon, and they're out in the wilderness that seems to be in Israel. And people were coming and were being baptized by Jesus and his disciples, is what it's saying there. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. John had not yet been thrown into prison. Of course, John's imprisonment is mentioned in the other three Gospels. Right? And in the other three Gospels, they tend to not show an overlap between John's ministry and Jesus's. John is thrown in prison near the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and then Jesus does his ministry. So there's less overlap in this. One thing we know, because John makes a note to say that the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison, that this must have happened early in Jesus's ministry. This event, this, this story we're reading, had to have happened early because it was quick. That Herod threw. It was quickly after Jesus had come on the scene that Herod threw John into prison. And so that that story, the question, the background of this, why does John mention that about him not yet being thrown into prison? One is to show that it's an early event in Jesus's ministry, uh, but two, it's it's clear that John knows the stories of the other Gospels. Right? He knows that his audience is going to remember hearing that that John had been thrown into prison, that he had been. You know, uh, beheaded, we find out later. And the background of that is, of course, his, uh, John's relationship with Herod. Herod Antipas is the, the ruler over that area. 
And um, when it says John was baptizing in the, in the other side of the Jordan, at the beginning of John, the other side of the Jordan would have been Herod's territory. And of course, Herod and John, their relationship was uh, fractured because John was so against uh, Herod's, what he considered, illegitimate marriage. Herod had married his brother's wife, and Herodias was her name, and uh, John believed that to be sinful, and he told him so. And so Herod ends up having him imprisoned and then beheaded because John is uh, rebuking him, really. And so what ends up happening is that you see that when he's on the other side of the Jordan, he's in Herod's territory. But here in Anon in Samaria, why these stories are taking place here, Herod wasn't in power in Samaria. It was not his kingdom. So John removes himself from the Jordan and comes out into this area in which he's free to do as he pleases. And so it says that they're there, and they're in uh, Anon near Salim. And there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Right? What's their point? Hey, that guy's taking your job. That Jesus guy is taking your ministry. That's what you're supposed to be doing. John's disciples are jealous for him. Right? They approach John saying, how can this Jesus take over what you have been called to do? Right? God has called you to be the baptizer, to be the forerunner. How, why is Jesus doing this? And it says all are coming to him, right? Jesus obviously was getting very uh, renowned. He was gaining a following. And so I think they're jealous for that too. Jesus has started gaining a following. And so John is, uh, you know, the, his disciples are thinking, aren't you concerned about this? Doesn't this disturb you that this man just comes on the scene and steals your ministry and everyone's coming to him? And John is, of course, the example of humility. I, I titled this message tonight, The Friend of the Bridegroom. Right? The Friend of the Bridegroom, which is what John self-identifies as here in this story. John's response to his disciples who are jealous for his ministry, they, he, here's what John says in in pure humbleness. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves, you who are coming to me, jealous on my behalf, don't you know? I told you. You're my witnesses that I said I wasn't the Christ. But I was sent ahead of him. John says, I was never meant to be the one who was to come. You're jealous on my behalf, but I'm not jealous. This is what I was sent for. The ministry that I received, I received from heaven. And so too did Jesus receive his ministry from heaven. That's why he says, no one can receive anything except what he has received from heaven. My ministry came to me from God, and I do my part. And Jesus' ministry also came from God, and he does his part. And you're confusing our parts. My part is to be the forerunner, not the Christ. His part is to be the Christ. And with that, 
the idea <coughs> of the Christ, you know, this messianic figure who is going to come, who's connected with God, I think we see the image that comes up next, okay? Because after saying that, John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Why does John turn to that image? Where is that image coming from? Why is that the thing he goes to? Well, Christ, obviously, like I said, was a, a messianic title. That messianic title uh, really had a close connection with God. In fact, as we find out, right, when we find out about Jesus, he is God. And so through that connection, when you hear uh, the, the idea of God and the bride, uh, my first instinct is always to look to the Old Testament for images, because that tends to be where most of the New Testament receives what it is talking about. Whenever they are have a metaphor or an image, they are usually drawing from their deep knowledge of their scriptures, which is the Old Testament. And so the, the image that I think of when I think of Christ and then thinking of this bride and bridegroom is God, right? The Father, but the God of the Old Testament in that era, the God of Israel, and His bride. And the Old Testament image of God and His bride is God marrying Israel. And that image shows up several times. I'll give you one example. There's many, but this is probably a, a, a stellar example, a great example. Um, Hosea, Hosea 2, right? Remember God tells Hosea, the prophet, to marry a wife of harlotry, right? He marries a whore. Why? Well, because God is, is saying, as Hosea is doing, as an example, him marrying a, a, a prostitute, that's like what happened to me. I married a, a prostitute, I married a prostitute, the nation of Israel, who has prostituted itself against me. That has been faithless and adulterous to me. Right? And here's a great image. Now, this isn't a restoration. There's a lot of pain and heartbreak throughout Hosea. It's God speaking about his beloved wife that has betrayed him, that has prostituted herself with the gods of every other nation. And there's some very stark, uh, very... Um, I would say almost crass images in the Old Testament about what that's like because God is so grieved and so pained by it. But here, this is in the restoration second section in Hosea 2. And he says this in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Her is Israel. Her is Israel. I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. As in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband. And you will no longer call me my Lord, my master. Right? There's this image of tenderness and devotion between Israel, who is the bride, and God, who is the bridegroom. Right? And he says that there will come a day when it won't be just uh, the lordship, though that is true. The lordship is true, but there will be a devotion and a tenderness in which you will call me my husband, my beloved, you know, my betrothed. That idea and the beauty of that concept. 
And I think that concept is the background when John thinks of the Christ, right? This coming Messiah. And then he brings up the bridegroom image. Well, he's making a statement about Jesus as God. Remember what, they, remember what his disciples had just said? All are coming to Jesus. Who's the all in that statement? It's not all people. Yet. It's certainly not all people. It's all Israel. When they say all are coming to him, who are the people that they're worried are being stolen away from, G, uh, from John? It's not Gentiles. They're not baptizing Gentiles. They have no concept of that at all. It's Israel. It's Israel. All, they're saying all of Israel is going to Jesus and leaving you, John. How do you feel about that? And he says, well, I'm not the Christ. And then he says the Christ is like a bridegroom with a bride. Well, who's the bride in that image? Israel. Who's the bridegroom? Christ. Christ is standing in the place of God in that image. It's a strong statement of Jesus' divinity right there. That Jesus is divine because he stands in the place of God in the relationship with Israel. The bride and the bridegroom. But John says this in his great humility. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love that statement because John understands his place. John understands his role. John gives this image, and the idea of the image, can you imagine if the friend of the, of the groom at a wedding turned around and made that wedding about him. Can you fathom that? You know, the best man gets up to, his, uh, to give a speech and he just starts talking about himself and how great I am and everyone should come to me. That's the image. That's the image. He says, no, this isn't about me. I'm the friend. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. This is not about me. This is about the wedding of the bride and the, and the groom. And I thought about that. I thought about, this week I thought about the fact that, you know, I thought about my good friend Tyler here. I, I thought about what it will be like on that day when he gets married and how, uh, how exciting that will be for me as his friend. How much joy I'll be filled having walked through life with him for the last you know, however many years since we were 14, basically, we've been close since we were 14. We probably know each other longer than that. But, but just how close we've been over all these years and um, how much joy that would fill me with for that day, for that day for him and to see his joy. And uh, that's the joy we have. That's the joy we have when we look at Christ, that this is about him. That this is about what he has been, has been commissioned by God to do. The idea of the friend of the bridegroom, this is interesting. Um, there's a specific, uh, I guess I'll call it a position in weddings, in ancient weddings, uh, of 
Jewish weddings. This is a Judean, right? John is a Judean, so Galilean weddings are different than Judean weddings. But John is a Judean. And, um, and this idea of the friend, the friend of the bridegroom, uh, it kind of correlates. What they think is behind that is this, uh, this uh, role called the shoshbin. Shoshbin. And um, the best equivalent is the best man. That's the best equivalent we can think of to compare it to modern society is that John is, is kind of using this concept of a best man, right? He's not, he's not just like some random friend at the wedding. He has a role, and it, this role is to be kind of this best man. And what's interesting, and this is so in line with John and who, how he understands himself, one of the most important priorities of the Shoshbin was to witness the wedding. Right? John always identifies himself as, as the witness. And their job was to be there to witness the wedding. Was to be that person who can, who can verify, who can testify that it happened. Right? Later rabbinic study, right? way later on in the future, when the Jews did their rabbinic interpretations, they said that God was Adam's shoshbin. They said God stood at Adam's marriage and was the shoshbin, the witness of the wedding between Adam and Eve. That's not scriptural, but it's just a beautiful image, isn't it? Isn't that a beautiful image? God stands as the witness of Adam and Eve's wedding, right? And John says, that's my role. I'm just here to witness and to honor and rejoice over the bridegroom and the, and the bride and what that means. He says, my joy has been made full. That was his responsibility, is to rejoice at the wedding. To rejoice at the wedding. And he knows, of course, I need to decrease and he needs to increase. And think about the humility of that. I mean, truly, I, I, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but, you know, we kind of look at these disciples like, oh, how could you be like that? You know, it's Jesus. But at the same time, can you imagine? Imagine John, his ministry's taken over. Jesus is doing what, he, what John thought his ministry was. There's a, there is an agony in that. There is a pain. And I just think about his humility. What a great man. What a great man he was to recognize his place and his role in this. In verse 31, it says this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Remember, if you were here when I talked about the end of uh, the Nicodemus section, I told you that starting in verse 16, For God so loved the world, scholars argue about whether that's Jesus talking or whether it's John the evangelist doing a reflection because so many themes show up from the prologue like it's the narrator reflecting well scholars do the same thing here it's the same thing from from verse 31 to ver verse 36 scholars wonder whether this is still John the Baptist talking or if this is John the narrator coming through because again he's tying together all these themes we've heard about remember from above monothane right from above, just like in Nicodemus. Remember, there's that, that word play on whether it's again or from above. He brings that up. 
He brings up what Jesus said in the Nicodemus encounter, right? Seeing and testifying what you, you can only uh, testify what you've seen and heard. He mentions that. It goes back to the Spirit and that concept throughout chapter 3. And again, it's just an interesting side note. I don't think it necessarily changes how we understand it, but it's an interesting thing to think about. What it has to say, though, is this, that the one who comes from above is above all, right? That's Jesus, of course. Mm -hmm. But the one from the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all what he has seen and heard. Of that he testifies. Right? What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. So he has seen heavenly things because he is from heaven, and therefore can speak to and testify to them. And here's the tragedy, of course. But no one receives his testimony. Right? The very next thing it says is, he who has received his testimony. Oh, okay, that's odd. It just said no one receives his testimony. How can anyone receive his testimony? I think it's it's just hyperbolic, right? It's just it's 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 a, a saying, a phrase. The vast majority of people are rejecting the testimony about who Jesus is, John's testimony of who he is, and Jesus' own testimony about who he is. They've rejected his testimony, despite him being the one from heaven, who can speak of heavenly things. They've rejected his testimony. But it says, the one who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. And the seal is that God is true. That God is true. That he is truth and that he speaks true. Mm -hmm. Right? The one who, see, who received uh, the testimony of Jesus, when it says set his seal, the way to think of that is like a signet ring, right? Right, the way that you would uh, place a ring with a, a brand or a, a symbol on it in wax, and you would it would seal a letter, for example. Right, a letter would be sent, and it would have wax on it, and you'd put your ring in it, and it would seal the letter. That's what it's talking about, setting your seal to this. So the one who has received the testimony of Jesus, we're literally sealing our testimony. And what is our testimony? Well, the testimony is that God is true. That God is true. So we too who have received Jesus' testimony, we too testify. And what we testify is that God is true. For he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, <coughs> he speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Scholars are divided on this verse. The he of verse 34, people aren't sure whether it's the Father or Christ. They, they aren't sure. It's an ambiguous he. Right? So it could mean for the it could mean for he, Christ, gives the spirit without measure, which would mean he gives the spirit without measure to his disciples. That's one. Right? Jesus, who is filled to the brim with the spirit, right? Back in John 2. John 2, the story of the the miracle at Cana, right? Those water pots are filled to the brim in the same way Jesus filled to the brim with the Spirit. And he gives the Spirit without measure to his disciples. Or the other option is it's the Father, for he, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. And who does he give the Spirit to without measure? Well, to Jesus. 
to Jesus. He gives the spirit without measure to Jesus. Those are the two options of what that verse means. I think I lean towards the Father being the giver. Because it makes sense of what John is going to say next. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. And why does Jesus speak the words of God? Well, because the Father gave Jesus the Spirit without measure. And then the very next thing, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father blessed Jesus with the Spirit without measure. The Father gave Jesus the Spirit without measure. In fact, not only has he given him the Spirit but he's without measure, he's given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Right? Those all things that have been given into the Son are given into the Son's hand. One of those, eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you can have eternal life. All things are in Jesus' hand. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This is interesting to me. It says, does not obey the Son. In both sections... It goes back and forth between belief and obedience, which we have kind of uh, separated those concepts in our modern day, what it means to have faith. We've kind of separated the idea of belief and, and works or faith and works. John speaks both of them hand in hand, here clearly here. right? Remember in verse 16, back way back in the beginning of chapter 3, with Nicodemus, Right? Whoever believes in the Son shall not perish, but have eternal life, John 3.16. But then at the end it says, at the end of that section in verse 21, it says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light. Belief and works. And here, in the same breath, it talks about believing in the Son, giving eternal life. He who does not obey will not see life. But wrath abides on them. See, even here in John, before we ever get to Paul, before we ever get to James, and that argument that so many people have had, faith and works work together in unison. There is no faith without works because your faith is meaningless. It is dead. It is worthless. Works is the evidence of that faith, the proof of it. So those who do not obey the Son will not see life, and instead wrath abides on them. Right? That same idea of judgment that we had just seen in the Nicodemus passage last week. Right? God, Jesus is not here to judge, and by that it means condemn. He's not here to condemn. Why? Well, the world was already condemned. He's here to save. The same thing here. The one who doesn't obey the Son, they're not going to see life because the wrath of God is already remaining on them. And notice the juxtaposition between the world, the unbelieving world, and Jesus, right? Remember how John recognized Jesus? It says John recognized Jesus because the Spirit abided on Jesus. 
that's the dichotomy there. If you do not obey the Son, you will not see life, and instead wrath abides on you, versus Jesus, whom the Spirit abides on. Those are the two poles. You can have the Spirit abide on you, like Christ, or you can have wrath abide on you, like the unbelieving world who does not obey the Son. And that's the last we hear from John. That's the last we hear from John in this gospel. His humility is striking. His humility is striking to me. And I thought about that this week for us. What's that mean for us to know our own place and our own role? I think we're so quick. I think we're so quick to look with longing at what other people have. What their ministry is. What their role is. What their place in life is. I think John is an example for us. I think John is an example for us. Everything a man has comes from heaven. Right? Mm-hmm. And that extends to what, what ministry and what place God has, has put us in. And like, you know, I think about the reality of, of um, pastors who build a following for themselves. And there's many pastors who do that. They're, they're out building a following, not for Jesus, but for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. <coughs> They want to be great. They want to do something uh, meaningful. And somehow that all convolutes into just being about them. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. They've missed being a man like John when they've made it about themselves. In fact, they're saying the, the opposite, the inverse of what John says. Well, maybe Jesus can decrease a little. So that I can increase. And I think all of us, and particularly me as I reflect on and, and my role, obviously, in this church, like, wh- who am I about? Am I about making a name for Jeremy? Am I about making a name for myself? Is this, at the end of the day, is this ultimately my church? Of course, I, I would say no now, but I also, uh, I take warnings from the scriptures. Don't let yourself get to that place. Don't let yourself get to that place where um, you're thinking about what you can do for you. And John hits the nail on the head that Jesus is the focus of this, of course. Jesus is the one who, who we should be pointing to. The one we should be gaining a following for should be Christ. And if that requires our decreasing, so be it. So be it. Um... And I think we all can. I think we all can take a lesson from that humility. To be content in what God has has gifted us with. Not that there isn't a desire for more or a a longing to do more or any of that. I think those are holy desires. But that we don't become um, discontented. That we don't become um, arrogant that we need more, that we were meant for more, that we were, uh, we have to have something better. We have to have something better. I don't think that is what we're called to do. I think we're called to accept where God has us and build what he wants us to build and be content with that. And so that's, 
I think the thought I would leave with you this week. Let's, let's consider where we're at and consider what God has for us and be content with where God has us, what he has for us. Uh, let me bless you and then we can end. Lord, thank you for these people. I pray everyone in this room would be blessed, that they would be blessed with the humility of John the Baptist who, who knew his place and even more so, would they be blessed with the humility of Jesus who would leave his throne, right? It even says he's from heaven, would leave heaven to come down, take on the form of a servant, it says in Philippians 2. How humble. How humble. And, and even when he came, he was the king. And he walked among the poor and the miserable and the sick. He did not require only being around the elite and, and the the high and mighty, but only walked among the broken and, and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all the, the sickness of the world. What a king. What a king. And I pray we'd be blessed with this hum that humility this evening, Lord, that you would bless each person here with that humility as they walk in the world this week. That we would accept what our station, accept our place and your role and place for us in this world. And would we do it? Would we do what you have called us to do? Each one of us are doing our part, doing our place in, in the world. And we love you, Lord. Bless each person. May they have that this week. Bless them with a fresh dose of humility, Lord, through your spirit. Amen. 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 Love you all. Thank you. Thank you for being here.